KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about land use and the plot of the landless. Today in the program, we have on Kelsey Baines, housing activist, active here in Palo Alto, here to talk about housing activism in Palo Alto, and also about her work in homelessness services, etc. Speaking at her own behest and not that of her employer, the VA. So let's uh, get into things. Welcome, Kelsey. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. So uh, if you are not familiar with Kelsey, Kelsey is uh, very active in uh, local local housing groups, Palo Alto Forward. You're on the board as well as you are uh, part of the uh, relatively new group, Peninsula for Everyone, uh, trying to unite a lot of activism from San Mateo County, Santa Clara County, and... Uh, and so on. Uh, and in your uh, your day job uh, right now is a clinical psychologist over at the Palto VA. And, yes. Uh, I guess just introduce you know to, to listeners what would you say that your work day to day is about? Because you know dealing with homelessness in this area, it's uh, yeah. I, I just think there's a ton we could. I I, I want to learn from from your work. Yeah, so I uh, work for VA Supportive Housing, uh, and the program that I work for is similar to something like a Section 8 voucher, but it's for formerly homeless veterans. Uh, So basically, we work with uh, veterans who are experiencing homelessness in some form. We we tend to prioritize chronically homeless veterans, which means they've been homeless for at least a year. Um, So sometimes people coming from encampments, uh, people who have been living in their car, for extended periods of time. And uh, then we um, connect them through um, the housing authority to uh, what's called a housing choice voucher. Um, So they're able to use that voucher to look for um, market rate housing or affordable housing. uh, But there's like a a set threshold for how expensive the rent can be. Uh, And they find a unit, they rent the unit. And then what what we do on the VA supportive housing side is help provide supportive services to help keep that veteran housed in their unit. Um, So that can look like a lot of different things. I work with a team of social workers who uh, they do the bulk of the services and then I I provide like a supplementary service. So my specialty is addiction and I work primarily with the veterans who are struggling to maintain their housing because of their substance use. Um, So I do a lot of getting people connected with residential treatment programs or with outpatient mental health treatment, a lot of what is called harm reduction. So maybe people are not ready to stop using substances, but we want to do things like prevent overdoses or um, if they're sharing needles happening, uh, helping them access services to access clean needles so they're not spreading um, things like HIV. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's the basics of what we do is get veterans housed and then try to keep them housed. So, so what I'm kind of curious because I just looked up some some of the overall numbers based on the best estimates of. Mm-hmm. You know, regional and local homelessness. Uh, so I, they do the biennial survey every two years, which I would love to know kind of what, you know, how accurate it is, because it sounds like it's an incredibly hard number to really know for certain. Uh, but 28,000 throughout the Bay Area. Uh, at large, and uh, here in Santa Clara County, uh, it's looking at uh, nine nine point seven thousand. Uh, closer to Palo Alto, I think you can you know draw your own conclusions. 
uh, far less than you see in the kind of urban hub of, of San Jose. Uh, I think the number is like 300 uh, in the Palo Alto proper, mm-hmm. much higher in East Palo Alto, just to hop away. Yeah. I wonder why that is. Uh, but um, I guess the question is like, how big of a pool of where people were, I guess, getting by being homeless, do they end up at the Palo Alto VA? Oh, so the Palo Alto VA draws from a much broader um, kind of catchment area than just the Bay Area. But just going back to your original point about the the point in time counts. So just in general, I think the the point in time counts likely significantly underestimate homelessness because what they're doing with the point in time counts is they're literally going out on a given night and counting people. So any kind of visible homelessness. So somebody like sleeping in their car, sleeping on the street, and they're literally counting people. Yeah. Um, so if somebody is sheltered on that given night in a place that is not an official shelter, they wouldn't be counted yeah. as part of that count. So I would guess that's a significant underestimation of what the actual uh, numbers are like. Uh, and then in terms of the distribution, uh, I think it's probably accurate that there's a lot more homelessness in areas where there's more uh, low-cost housing. Because if you think about if I'm uh, someone who's kind of living on the margins, I move to whatever the cheapest available housing is, and then if I lose my job or if my rent goes up, then I literally have nowhere to go, um, and I am likely to just then be homeless within my community. So that's why you see um, higher counts of homelessness in places like East Palo Alto, because their rents go up, they don't have anywhere to go, so maybe then they move into an RV. The the Ravenswood School District, which East Palo Alto is a part of, as as well as East Menlo Park, um, 23% of the, the kids in that school district are homeless or experiencing homelessness. Yeah, you look at the trends. I mean, I, I agree. I think when you look at something which is just simply look around. I mean, homeless people don't exactly optimize for being as visible as possible. Mm-hmm. So to imagine that even in people who aren't crashing for one night with somewhere, it's it's got to be a massive underreporting. I and it, I. They don't even adjust it, as far as I understand, for this. As far as is that true? Yeah. So I think rather than looking at it as a count, look it's at the better. Trend. Yeah, just to look at the trends. And what we saw with this most recent count is that the numbers went up in almost every county. Yeah, Santa Clara um, County, thirty-one percent. It yeah. went up, and it's you talk about people who are like become homeless right in their own community. Of the people who are homeless in Santa Clara County, uh, something like. Uh, Forty-one uh, percent are first-time homeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in 50, uh, something like, uh, yeah, it's you know, thirty-three percent. Yeah, I'll, I'll just stop there. Forty-one percent homeless. It's it, which is, and a lot of these people, like, it's not the just the the chronically homeless people. That's only of the nine thousand, uh, something like two point four mm-hmm. chronically homeless. A lot of people are obviously on the margin and the housing unaffordability has, has has pushed them to this place. Yeah, one of the interesting things in terms of homeless trends is the number one growing demographic of homeless people in Santa Clara County is seniors. Um, because if you're on a fixed income and your rent's going up and up and up, yeah. eventually there's nowhere to go. And I've gotten a lot of those phone calls from people who have been in their, their home for 20 years and maybe uh, Maybe ownership changes and their rent gets jacked up and 
you know, they, they've had a, a cheap rent for a long time and uh, there's nowhere for them to go. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, Prop 13 went over a big outrage. People say, you can't tax people out of their homes. If you're a renter, though, it doesn't matter if you've been living there for decades. It's it's incredible how these people can just be uh, just, to, it's like, oh, this is this this is fine. This, yeah. It's, 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 it's disgusting. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, so. but you talk about the catchment area of the Palo VA. Uh, so, exactly, like, people, do they commute in from, from long distances to get to where you are? Um, so the like VA Palo Alto's catchment area is quite large. Um, so it depends like what you're talking about. But so previously I worked in residential substance use, uh, and in Palo Alto, those are the only residential uh, substance abuse programs, or I should say substance use disorder. That's the new uh, terminology. But the the only substance use disorder um, residential programs in most of, I think, all of Northern California, and then they also bring in people from the Hawaiian Islands, um, and like Pago Pago. Um, so yeah. it's it's a fairly big catchment area. I would say the the average homeless veteran that we're working with um, is either from the Bay Area or from like the Central Valley, like. They grew up in Lodi or Stockton uh, and then have been homeless within their community. Uh, and then we um, might bring them in for um, like a residential treatment program, either in substance use or I used to work at a six month residential program f- specifically for homeless veterans. Um, and yeah, a lot of the veterans are from definitely most are from California. Occasionally we'll get people from Hawaii, but mostly from either the Bay Area or, like, kind of Central Valley sort of areas. Would it be wrong to say that in such a large catchment, the amount of people who need help is far larger than you're able to give help to? Yeah, although the VA has um, for a long time uh, been or at least since the Obama era, had this goal of ending veteran homelessness. Um, And in some localities, they have functionally ended homelessness, meaning like if somebody shows up and Mm. needs a place to live, they can house them. I don't think we've ended homelessness in the Bay Area functionally, but we are like oftentimes actively looking for people. So it's a big part of the VA is outreach services. So looking for um, veterans experiencing homelessness to bring in. Um, but when but, you're, when you're yeah. talking about, I guess, people in the Central Valley even, are mm-hmm. they are they making their way into th- this area or is, so are these affiliates? We have like what the VA supportive housing that we that I work for, we have that in every county. Oh, OK. Um, so uh, so I work for like the the team that houses people from Gilroy up into like Daly City. Um, so that kind of geographic area. But there are other teams and other uh, geographic areas, but it's all part of the VA. Sure, Palo Alto. It's, Inter- just a big it's, it's just the HQ area. of it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah. that's 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 good to, to, that people aren't going through that kind of commute to, to get help. Right. Uh, although you know, most of the like the residential programs are yeah. here in Palo Alto, but then after they get their residential treatment, they might go back to. Fresno or yeah. wherever they're from. But actually, I mean, I just said that by immediately regretting it because, like, I mean, you're saying down to Gilroy. Gilroy is not close. Yeah, but it's part of Santa Clara County. Exactly. Yeah. It's a big county. Yeah, it's a very big county. And so are there people who are commuting from Gilroy to, to get to Yes, to although there, there's, uh, it's still part of the VA Palo Alto, but there's a campus in San Jose, um, which is southern San Jose. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there was there was an article out this this past week uh, in the in the post uh, asking people, are you a YIMBY or a NIMBY? Asking people who are running for state senator, and it's it's very curious that people are very unlikely to say I'm 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 a NIMBY. You know, everyone has reasons not to say it. Yeah, I I am familiar with people who have dedicated decades of their lives to blocking housing, and they would never call themselves a NIMBY. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some people would say, it's like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. You're talking with people who need affordable housing. Why would you support the building of trickle-down luxury housing? Yeah. Uh, like, I, I, I'm positive, like, I don't know how often you hear that, but it's the most common refrain. Yeah. And particularly in Palo Alto, there's a, there's a real disconnect. People don't get the connection between housing supply and homelessness. Like I think in order to address homelessness, certainly like you need housing targeted at those populations, like permanent supportive housing, uh, affordable housing. But the reason we're seeing increasing homelessness is because there is lack of housing supply overall. Um, So you need to address overall housing supply if you're going to prevent more people from becoming homeless. Um, So I think of it as like, we need housing for everyone. Um, and that includes affordable housing, but it also includes um, market rate housing. I think it just includes how do we get the most housing as quickly as possible. And I'm getting kind of curious, like just in, in practice, when you're talking about through the program that, that you work with, you know, people are given vouchers and, mm-hmm. and find housing, uh, a, you know, affordable housing around here. There's usually a f- long waiting list. It's very hard uh if, if it's a currently subsidized and there's a lot of trouble with people with voucher systems to even uh, be able to to get in uh, and I'm kind of yes. curious like how are you seeing housing scarcity throughout the different cities of Santa Clara County and beyond affect people's ability to get housed through these voucher programs yeah so that was kind of how I got interested in housing in the first place was I, I started working for this supportive housing program where we have all these residential treatment programs in uh, Menlo Park and in Palo Alto and I would just hear over and over from veterans who were coming into the program who I knew really well from the residential programs and they would say like I want to stay close to the hospital so I can access uh, VA jobs programs. Like a lot of them work on campus um, so I can access jobs and continue going to treatment and stay connected with my community. Um, But what I would see over and over is like there just isn't housing supply uh, within the um, under the payment standard for for the county because uh, unfortunately both San Mateo County and um, more problematically, Santa Clara County, um, they set the payment standard by the county. So, like, I'll say it's, I think it's like 2245 is the payment standard for the, that the housing authority sets. So, like, that's your max rent. Is, is that for um, a, a single person? Yeah, for a single person, for yeah. one bedroom. Um, and it's a little bit lower for a studio and a little bit more for a two bedroom, but that's kind of, you know, the basic price that you're looking to get under. And that's fairly easy to do once you get, you know, south of Sunnyvale. But if you're trying to be close to the VA, close to Menlo Park in Palo Alto, it's really hard to do. Um, Because basically in both counties, the closer you get to um, 
the center of Silicon Valley, the the more scarce housing is. Um, yeah. So it's really hard to find a place that is under that payment standard, but it's also really hard to find a landlord who will take a voucher because there's so much competition for rents. Like yeah. people like me have a hard time finding a place to live here. So, and I think you talked about earlier, the VA is willing to fund to say we will. You know, we will make sure that no one in the VA programs is being unhoused, but, you know, the federal government is not building these places themselves. Yeah. And that is a shift, I think, from like post-World War II, they were building how like we kind of decided as a society we're going to house all these veterans Yeah. Um, versus now there is still this desire to house veterans, but we're doing it in this really weird way with these vouchers that are uh, aggressively means tested. So like you need to make, uh, this isn't going to be an exact number, but let's say less than $45,000 a year. And then if you make more than that, you don't qualify for the voucher anymore. Um, And now you've got to pay market rate just like everybody else. Um, So so yeah, the, the, we're not just straight up housing people anymore. There's this like intermediate <laughs> step with a voucher. If you're making forty five thousand around here, you will. That is very difficult to be housing stable on yeah. that. Yeah, and I've I've heard that over and over from people is like just this concern where if I just make a little bit more, yeah. than than the the means test, then I I'm worried I'm going to be homeless again. Yeah, um, and so I I work with people on like, you know, the reality of having roommates and. Maybe you have to leave this community where you're you've been living for several years and um and yeah, that's just an unfortunate problem with the the system and i I imagine I mean this is just me speculating that the difficulty if you get above the margin, lose your means testing, and then you drop back below it, that's probably going to be a massive, massive amount of bureaucratic you know headache to to just get back into things, yeah, yeah, um and yeah, it's just disruptive to people's lives and and just I think limits the the opportunities for growth of people cuz you would think in a normal circumstance it would be great if you went from being a temp employee to a permanent employee and then got a promotion. Yeah. Like under normal circumstances that would be something to celebrate and instead people are just concerned like am I going to be able to afford my apartment anymore? Yeah. Um which it's, yeah, it's it not just a choice no people sense. should be having to make. Yeah, uh, and I was—I don't know how this deals with kind of the VA level funding, but I was looking at it was kind of talking about regional wide homelessness uh, supportive budgets for helping people. Over half of it go to subsidizing people to prevent them from going back into homelessness. Mm-hmm. Which is, if you look at like of all the things people need to be doing, this is a direct flow of money from homelessness programs to landlords in the area, as opposed to anyone actually doing stuff to just say, oh, maybe we can save a little bit and avoid the middleman here. Yeah. Although I will say, I I hear you on the subsidizing landlords. Um, but I do think in terms of where to s- spend money and where to focus money that it makes a certain amount of sense to me to focus a lot on homeless prevention because the experience of becoming homeless yeah. can be a trauma in and of itself and can cause a whole additional host of problems. So if you can prevent someone from becoming homeless in the first place, I think that's that's money well spent by, oh, by certainly. the Certainly. I, I only meant to underline the fact that the fe- we're not doing public housing at the scale we right. need. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about a lot of people are optimistic um, 
that Measure A passed in Santa Clara County, mm-hmm. and this will put $950 million towards building subsidized housing units. But you look at the map of where it's getting built, right. and it's all San Jose or South and Gilroy. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, not to point fingers, but absolutely to, in Palo Alto, no one is really upset if people are living in Palo Alto to maintain a certain exclusive quality of life. And I yeah. think that's really, really problematic. Yeah. And in terms of how a lot of Palo Altans view themselves, and if you talk to them about homelessness, they they say, you know, I think we should house homeless people. Um, but if I think if most people were presented with, uh, you know, affordable housing for formerly homeless people in their neighborhood, they would say, I don't want that here. Like yeah. my kids live here. I want to be safe. Um, I just saw a story recently in San Jose. I think in downtown San Jose, they proposed um, permanent supportive housing for formerly homeless people. And there was such uproar from from the community that they changed it to it's now senior housing mm. for formerly homeless people. So um, they're still trying to push it through, but they changed the population to make it more palatable. Is this, this a new program? Because like, I think it was only like a year or two ago, the bridge housing in San Jose, mm-hmm. people were... You know, chanting build a wall and like in the the city council person yeah. got like ran out <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's really hard politically to get housing or or shelter like yeah. any kind of service for homeless people because there's such a stigma about homelessness and people kind of jump straight to you know it, they're going to be dangerous people they're going to be mentally unstable yeah. um versus recognizing like we need these services in every community and um and i think it's hard for electeds to kind of push these things and say like it's okay to feel scared but we have this responsibility yeah um and yeah i think just a lot of times the fear overrides everything and then in palo alto if we think about the so the most recent affordable housing that was done was uh, kind of targeting a uh, developmentally disabled population, um, which I think is a little bit easier to get done politically um, sure. because that isn't a population that scares people. This um, is the one project over on El Camino. Yeah, I, I knew Wilton, someone work, working on that. Yeah, yeah Wilton Court, um, and that was the first affordable housing uh, like new project in many years. I think um, it was a decade. Close to a decade, I think. Yeah. I think so what Eric Philseth says is uh seven or eight years. Sure. Um, that's that's the number he gives. Uh, but the what happened seven or eight years ago was there was an affordable housing project for seniors and it was approved by the city council and then there was a referendum that successfully killed the project. Um and yeah, and it didn't get built, and now it's being built as single-family homes. I don't know. Have you seen it? Uh, I'm not, I, I've not seen the yeah, area, but it's, yeah. it's worth mentioning to my Phil Seth. Phil was behind right. the referendum to stop it. Also, Tom Du Bois, mm-hmm. and they're both currently counseled. Yeah, and, and Lydia Koo, I think. Oh, I, yeah. that's not shocking. Yeah, and these people, like these, are people who now will like, oh, I'm not a NIMBY, and they'll make equity arguments mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's worth always saying there's always, always reasons. Okay, you know, we're, I don't want this project because it's not 100% affordable. 
Mm-hmm. Then you make it 100% affordable. It's like, wait, look, this is 100% affordable for 70% area median income? That's so high. What about 30% area median right. income? Yeah. And to the point that, like, they really would, like, and then you get to, and every time you make it, you know, kind of more and more means tested lower, it's at once more difficult to fund. Mm-hmm. And it's also more politically uh, unpopular to say, like, oh, this is someone who is, like, on the margins of housing instability. But making some money as opposed to this is someone who's completely homeless, you know, going through addictions, is having issues. There is certain going to be even more backlash on something like that. Yes. Yeah. Because those are populations that are scarier to people. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, those kinds of projects. Like, I don't I don't know when Palo Alto has ever done a project like that. I do think so. There's something called the Opportunity Center that is in Palo Alto, and I do think they have some permanent housing units there now. Um, but as far as I know, that's the only one. And I like that place is 88 total units. Uh, so I mean, that's that's not a ton of total units. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think if you want to build to the scale, I don't have it in front of me, but. Uh, Palo Alto's overall arena numbers, which are, of course, I think the, the, the very floor of what you can possibly aim for. Mm-hmm. They're extremely low income. They just are not even chipping away at no. it. Yeah, we didn't come close uh, with affordable housing. We didn't even meet our market rate arena targets or the above market rate arena targets, Yeah, um, which were way too low yes. compared to the, the jobs growth that actually happened during that time frame. But yeah. And and I think you talk about like okay we're back in like the San Jose uh, what kind of led to issues I think mm-hmm. we're talking about the bridge housing one big thing they try for is like okay every district will pull an equal amount mm-hmm. and I think you talk about downtown core they can throw stuff up and I think the downtown core will roll with it you put a district which is exclusive those people went you know crazy mm-hmm. and I think you talk about the same thing in the entire Santa Clara County. You could say the very minimum should be for every place pro, you know, per capita to pull their weight. Palo Alto isn't even close. Yeah. And I would personally say because the opportunity is so much higher in a place like Palo Alto, I think a much, much higher percentage of, of supportive housing should be built here. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you think about what kinds of services there are for people, there's Stanford is here. Uh, if it's veterans, the the VA is here and there's a, a wealth of services. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a lot more opportunity here. It would be great if we had a lot more affordable housing and a lot more affordable, supportive housing. And talk about just getting a, a job. If you're talking about getting a job, you know, here where it's like they're always help mm-hmm. wanted because they yeah. can't hire fast enough mm-hmm. because people can't live here yes. versus Gilroy, which is I mean, I, I think Gilroy is not as bad as like places in Imperial Valley or something. But it's not going to be as easy to be like a gig economy, a, you know, a kind of entry level anything mm-hmm. when you are being forced to live on the margins of a, of a region like this. Yeah. And and that was something that was really frustrating to me when I first started this job was like the reality of where people tend to find housing that they can use their voucher and it's under the payment standard um, is a lot of times pretty far away from the VA. So I. Uh, and many of the veterans that I work with don't have cars. Yeah. Um, and I knew veterans who were spending like two hours on the bus every day to get to their job. And then, you know, you just don't have much of a life when you're spending four hours a day uh, just in transportation alone. And then you have your your job um, and people burn out 
quickly like that. And if you're somebody who's struggling to rebuild your life, uh, that is not the ideal circumstances for doing that. And I think that's, I mean, personally speaking, why someone, I guess, centered around trying to fix things in Palo Alto, I'm under no illusion that SB 50, for instance, will make things affordable in Palo Alto. But I think pragmatically, it has the ability to pull in the margin of affordable housing from Gilroy Mm -hmm. closer to Sunnyvale and Mountain View in a way that I think would make a big difference in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And I also think part of it is just changing the the standards around what is feasible yeah. um, because any kind of multifamily housing is so, yeah, just controversial in Palo Alto, anything yeah. um, like a three-story building, any sort of three-story building is like, it's like the sky is falling. So if that was just the standard, okay, if it's near the train station, you get five stories um, and anywhere it can be up to four units. I think it would just change the nature of the conversation. I I think it will change people, to be honest. I think if you talk about if there's one thing that, I mean, before I started like getting really hardcore about just like being outraged about land use, I was just, I listen to Paul City Council because this radio station airs it and these people are the most grotesque, self-serving people on a week-by-week basis, like, they talk about a single-story overlay and, like, oh, someone will be able to, like, like, look at my backyard. It's like everyone is so paranoid and weird. I think living in a single-family exclusive area warps you, (laughs) like, in no certain way. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is just, like, you... You want to hold on to what you have. Sure. Loss aversion. Yeah. It's... it's, Yeah. That's kind of the... The theme of NIMBYism is it's just pure loss aversion. So if you think you're in utopia and you don't want to lose that. um, You're very entitled to say like this. I I can't see. I mean, I would love to help uh, people who are housing insecure. Sure, I'll support a bond for the county, but I don't want to see traffic go up. I don't want to see anything change anywhere in my life. And this is somehow people justify. Yeah. One of my... Uh, very early experiences doing housing work in Palo Alto or like housing advocacy in Palo Alto is I went to one of the community meetings that was about the housing work plan, uh, which in 2018 Palo Alto was trying to revise rules for like things like density limits and floor area ratio. Um, And they had this community meeting to talk about like what, what is the community willing to change to get more housing, basically? Um, and I had this really strange interaction with this woman where um, they had us fill out cards. And what I wrote on my card was, I wish Palo Alto would focus more on housing humans and not cars. And this lady comes up and she's like, that's so stupid. Um, and um, and then I I just start talking to her and I'm like, I, I work with homeless people. And to me, it's like, a lot of them don't have cars and I don't see why Palo Alto focuses so much on parking. Uh, I never have a hard time parking in Palo Alto, um, but I certainly have a hard time paying rent. And I know a lot of people who want to live here who don't need cars. And she was like, oh, well, I I think we should house homeless people. Um, so it was just this like disconnect. Um, and yeah, and now that I know, 
I know better who she is uh, from going to meetings. She is someone who has advocated against housing for literally decades. Oh, no way. Yeah. No. I mean, you talk about, you know, housing, cars. I think one of the, you're talking about that, uh, the project for people with disabilities mm-hmm. that was being on El Camino. And I was hearing someone who was working on that and largely because the people there don't drive because they are actually physically not able to drive. Mm-hmm. It would be severely underparked. And this outrage people. It's like, I refuse to have any place that doesn't have sufficient parking places. Yeah. Yeah. I went to a lot of those meetings. Uh, so I saw how hard it was to get through Planning Commission. And I don't know if you know Jan Stokely. She's uh, the uh, executive director of Housing Choices, which advocates for housing for people with developmental disabilities. But she was really amazing and pushing that through just with facts about yeah. like, this population can't drive yeah. and they need this housing that's close to public transportation. They don't need these parking spots. They just drive up the cost of the housing and like, please don't make it infeasible uh, with too much parking. Yeah. Um, and so she was really instrumental in getting that through a planning commission that is not particularly, um, or at least at the time, the planning commission has changed, but at the yes. time it was not housing friendly. That's one great paradox is that people in Palo Alto, I mean, I think it's easily resolved if you really look at it. Mm -hmm. They say, I refuse to have housing that isn't fully parked because everyone deserves a car. And what is the thing that outrages them is more traffic. Yes. It's just like, (laughs) I don't understand why people don't put two and two together where it's like, if you build a parking garage with 600 parking spots, what do you think is going to come there? Uh, and then it, it's always the, the same refrain of like, what about the parking? What about the traffic? So yeah. they want more parking and then they're concerned about the traffic. Well, there's two ways to ultimately resolve it. One is you create a new class of residents who get around through public transit and public transit would have to be a lot better. Mm -hmm. But some people are saying, oh, I prefer to ride the bus. It'll be a little bit, you know, I'm on the margin of not buying a car. And the more that grows, the more feasible it becomes because Mm -hmm. you actually start to see infrastructure, you know, work around, you know, if there's enough people to serve. That's one solution. The other solution is don't house people, don't have residents. And this clearly is what people want. Yes. Yeah. And I think this, oh, you're investing in a parking garage. It's not really to say, oh, it's to manage growth. It's saying, we just want to have 1970s style housing forever. And it would be nice to have a nice parking garage, which yeah. is at the, a half capacity all the time. That'd be ideal. Yeah. Well, most of the parking garages in town are mostly empty most yeah. of the time. I, I live downtown. I park on the street. Um, I take a cut in my rent. So my roommate parks two cars in our parking garage. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I have no problem parking on the street. If you go to any of the parking garages, not during the middle of a work day, they're empty. So they're empty most of the time. And uh, yeah, the parking garage that they're building on California Avenue is just the most infuriating thing oh, to me. Oh, it's great. It's a 50 mil, they're spending $50 million to build a parking garage on public land. And it's like, that's that's the use of public land. That's the highest and best use. Um, it's, but it's yeah, worth it makes it. me so mad. Yeah, I mean, the existence of any street parking for free is, I mean, I have for the last, uh, really since I got a car four years ago out of necessity, I, I moved from Sunnyvale. Sunnyvale, I was living in the bottom of a townhouse and renting a room, but I was unable to park there and I got ticketed enough times I had to actually park on streets nearby and I usually have to 
like walk five blocks because it was dense with street parking. Mm-hmm. Because I think it was a free service, and what happens when you have a, 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 a the commons being taken by everybody? It gets filled up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean. Fortunately, unfortunately, I think I deserve that mental pain because I should have been pushed. If it really was, if I had to walk forty blocks, I probably would have considered taking the bus every day and selling my car. Mm-hmm. I moved to Palo Alto, living in a hundred thirteen square foot place now, and it's so easy to park. And this is wrong. <laughs> like it yeah. should, it should yeah. not be this easy to park. Yeah, and it shouldn't be free. It should like, not be free. Yeah. yeah, I I park on the street for free, and I don't think that's right. No. <laughs> I mean, it's land is expensive around here. Yes. And you look at what it goes to. It goes to making cars easy to stash. Yes. Uh, so let's, t- I guess, talk more about uh, just the fact that you focus in addiction. And I think I've been, I've been abusing myself by listening to right-wing pundits talk about homelessness. And they're upset about, like, the fact we have, you know, in the liberal enclaves of the Bay Area, you know, people, oh, they coddle the homeless. What they need is to realize they all have addictions, and this is the root cause. You need to cure this and not coddle the homeless with programs. And, I mean, you, you I think a lot more than Sebastian Gorka have real experience with people who who are dealing with homelessness and have addictions. And uh, why is that perhaps not the smartest thing to say? Yeah. So I think, first of all, we don't coddle our homeless people here. <laughs> um, most of the homeless population in Santa Clara County is unhoused, uh, unlike some other areas. The vast majority of homeless people in California are unsheltered and if you think about what your existence looks like as an unsheltered person, um, that's a scary way to live. Um, so I kind of think if I was unsheltered, I would want to be high. Like you would want to get out of your head because that's a, a miserable existence for the most part. Yeah. Um, so I think from coming from like an addiction treatment perspective, I see housing like stable place to live as a prerequisite for sobriety um, where you're not going to get sober if you don't have a safe place to be. Um, And I think that, you know, treating addiction is, it's not an easy thing to treat. It's one of the harder um, clinical areas to work in. Um, But yeah, if you're unhoused, you're not going to be successful in treatment for the most part. And that was something where um, there has been a shift in the the mental health community to recognize that, um, where there was this recognition that for a long time, the model was housing readiness. So the idea was, you need to go to treatment, you need to get sober, you need to get a job. And continue to be unsheltered? Yeah, before we'll we'll put Whoa. you into housing, you you need to jump through all these hoops. Yeah. So it might be going to a residential substance use disorder program. Yeah. Um, but you like basically you need to meet these prerequisites before we'll get you housed. Um, but then they started doing a lot of research. Um, a lot of it was coming from Seattle where they just housed people and then they looked at what their substance use looked like and just housing people alone, not providing them any therapy or anything, people drink less yeah. just from getting them housed. So just having that like basic need met um, means you're likely to use 
uh, less substances. Um, yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I just disagree with the premise, first of all, <laughs> that we're coddling people. Um, but, but yeah, I think that in order to get people connected with recovery and to get on the path to um, addressing addiction, but also like other mental health concerns is like you need basic safety yeah. um, in order to address those things. I mean, of course, addiction can strike at any level of, of wealth and privilege. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, at, you know, from the Seattle, you know, kind of uh, you know case alone, but mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there's a wealth of evidence. I think the more, you know, kind of personal misery you go through, it, it, it must correlate with all sorts of higher risk for addiction. Yeah, because a lot of times people are using substances as a way to cope. And if you are in a really stressful, unsafe environment, you're going to use more substances just by virtue of that being the environment that you're in. So if you put people in a safe place, a place where they have support, um, they will oftentimes reduce their substance use just by virtue of that alone without any additional treatment. But it also provides an opportunity to get people connected with treatment if they're housed. Um, And that's a lot of like what I do um, and what my my team does at the VA is getting people connected with services that can help. Yeah, it's worth mentioning too. I think people who go through the VA path who are veterans, they, I think, have perhaps a good reason to feel that they have a a fair chance of being helped as opposed to non-veterans around the area, I think there's a very real sense that is accurate, which is saying there isn't a lot of hope that there's enough services to go around to help everyone who needs it. Mm-hmm. People really, there it is, it is so overextended. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't even know where to direct someone who isn't a veteran, who is someone who has, let's say, uh, serious mental health concern and addiction and uh, is unhoused, I wouldn't know where to send that person outside the VA. Like yeah. I, look, I look through, uh, there's a Palo Alto shelter directory, which lists, you know, kind of different by different amounts of miles away from Palo Alto. And mm-hmm. you talk about the uh, the, oh, the Opportunity Center is mm-hmm. the you know, one right, right here. You go further out, further out, further out. And it says right at the bottom of every page, you know, for the shelter, uh, you know, the the waiting list is considered very long. You know, you should be advised there is not many. And that's you, every amount of subsidized housing in this area. It is considered just, oh, it's it's how things are that we have decades long waiting lists throughout, throughout this area. And it's also incredibly frustrating to work through. It means a lot of individual work to get in all these disparate different housing organizations and so on. I've, I've talked to people in, in uh, working areas like, oh, yeah, it's, it's probably a pain. It's like that's, you know, this is someone who's like in a city council for a fairly privileged city in this area. It's like, well, it's probably a pain, but it's not our job to solve that. I'm saying, well, that's a bad attitude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 uh, I mean, I think at the very least, the VA offers a centralized service for veterans in a way that people who are not this, there is no centralized help that people have. Yeah. And I think that's one advantage of that kind of type of healthcare system where everything is integrated. It's it's not just, you know, your hospital. Uh, it's, you know, you can get help with your 
your work and you can get help with getting connected with school. Um, so it's kind of this more holistic model um, that would be nice if everyone had access to. Um, is, there, is there any reason it wouldn't really offer just a good model for housing insecurity across the general population? Well, I think we would just have to address um, our our medical system in general um, yeah. because yeah, you you just kind of have to include housing as part of medical care, I think. Yeah. So I think this offers the fact if there really was a good faith effort to say that we need to address housing insecurity, it's, a, it's an amazing challenge. I mean, I think the level of funding we do, the amount of restructuring of services is going to be immense, but it is in, in just it's possible, mm-hmm. but it needs a lot of energy and focus and money. And you look at people who are the loudest in a place like Palo Alto, and I think very few of them who will tisk-tisk at trickle-down luxury housing are doing anything to really address this in a meaningful sense. And in fact, one of their biggest uh, uh, you know, sticking points to focus on is the fact, oh, it's just because we have too many uh, jobs created, we just need to stop office growth. And that's like really where they begin and end. <laughs> is it, I mean, I, 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 I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where a lot of energy and focus, I think, for years has gone as there was a, a petition to put uh, an annual cap on office growth and um, a huge amount of energy behind that. And it was successful. And what we've seen from that is it doesn't house people <laughs> um, like it. I, you know, I don't have strong feelings about office growth in general, but I don't think it's necessarily un. It doesn't sound unreasonable to say we need to limit office growth so that housing can catch up, but they've only we've only limited housing growth. We're not doing anything to help housing catch up, um, and yeah, there hasn't seemed to be the political will to do that. Um, in 2018, the council did this housing work plan that did make some positive changes to make multifamily housing more feasible in some places, but it's still not feasible in places like downtown, uh, which would be obviously great places for more housing. And there was supposed to be a second ordinance this year. There was supposed to be a 2019 ordinance that was more like missing middle housing types and also focusing on uh, preserving existing, like naturally affordable housing in Palo Alto. And the council has just not done anything on that. They, yeah. It's it's like they forgot about it. Um Although I th- I think just the current council, we have a new council. I think the current council doesn't want to prioritize that. Um, so the reality is, like, we are making almost no progress on housing, um, particularly affordable housing, but, like, anything. Yeah. I think the only project that's actually in the pipeline right now is um, some uh, some condos on San Antonio yeah. that will have like a inclusionary 15% affordable. Um, but that's it. Like yeah. that's the only significant multifamily um, in the pipeline this year is that, that one project. And yeah, there was another project that was um, in my neighborhood. It was 190 Channing, so close to the Whole Foods. Um, and... It was built exactly 
as it was specified in the zoning code. So it's like a 1.15 FAR, even though it's walking distance to the train station. Um, and what it'll look like is multiple offices and four housing units. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and I think it's going to be like, I can't remember it's three or four stories, but it, if you, it's a 1.15 FAR, it's not going to be a very big building. And I think that's, that's, that's what's demoralizing. I think people who are housing advocates in the worst area in the world, which is the center Silicon Valley mm-hmm. is you can fight, you know, for, for years on trying to get a few more housing units. And in the end, they'll still open with more offices than, than housing units. Yeah. And yeah. this is like the best you can hope for. Yeah. And, and I- this is this is post-cap. Yeah. So it's like there's this office cap. But yeah, the, the buildings that are actually going up downtown still have offices because you can still have some office. Yeah. And it's just so little housing, um, like literally four units within walking distance to the train station. And I think if you look at the vision, what is a good faith? Because I think you're saying like people are saying, OK, we need to make sure there isn't a jobs housing imbalance. And I think broadly, I mean, maybe in a perfect world, you have some neighbor like neighboring cities are have some, you know, kind of flow back and forth. That's probably not the worst thing in the world. But I mean, every single area in the Bay Area has had tremendous uh, tremendously more jobs. I think in the last decade, something like eight to one jobs versus new housing units in Santa Clara County. And I'm sure, sure, it's tremendously worse in Palo Alto. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it just seems so silly to have a citywide office cap when we are in this region. Like Facebook is down the street and they're getting ready to build a huge new Yeah. Uh, complex uh like village that's going to have a ton more jobs and they're opening up another campus in Burlingame um and yeah so i i don't know what difference it's going to make to have a office cap that is citywide it would need to be a regional yeah um effort you need i mean i just say that this this office cap is clearly not going to i address the the current imbalance but also i have no reason to believe anything that people are actually supporting is going to be anything that will actually lead one-to-one pairing of jobs versus housing for the future in any reasonable way. Well, and I would say a one-to-one pairing would be a, a policy failure. I, I think it's, it's, it's not, not enough yeah, right. <laughs> right now. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, I'd say it's, it's funny. It's not even getting close to that. And I yeah. think you talk about, uh, yeah, it's like they're like the, the next general plan for, uh, for Palo Alto. The most aggressive housing case was still many, many, many more jobs being created than housing. Yeah. Yeah. Like our, our goal that we failed to meet last year and will likely fail to meet again this year. I think it, it's fairly clear as 300 housing units a yeah. year. That's Palo Alto's goal. And yeah, that's not going to make a significant dent in in our jobs housing imbalance. And yeah, it's not going to address our, our crisis in any kind of meaningful way. And it's like we can't even hit that sad goal. <laughs> and it's it's clear that like as soon as it stops being politically advantageous, you would just take away the caps or something. Like what would it really look like if a wizard came down and said, you must house every person who works here and then suddenly was binding? This would mean amazing desperation for the area because people who work most jobs in this area are commuting in. People who work low paying jobs are commuting in from farther and farther away and i mean i i can like listen to people who go to palo alto and like they like are a dentist who need dental assistance to work for them talking about their community from tracy and all this 
And what would it take for them to say, I need these people to be housed in the area? If they actually needed that, it would take it would it would be like mobilizing for war. It would it would take so much work. But it's clear that the people who don't want housing growth, they want the dental assistants here. They want the baggers and the cashiers to be working and serving them, but they don't want to house them. They want them to be housed elsewhere. And this is fine yeah. with them. Well, and I think that's the collective action problem is that's the attitude everywhere on the peninsula. Yes. Is, well, they, they can go live elsewhere. Yeah. Um, like go find a starter home in Sunnyvale. And then the people in Sunnyvale are go find a starter home in San Jose. Yeah. Um, and it's just the the like drive until you qualify gets further and further away and then there's this crippling traffic and that's what people complain about is the traffic that's the concern is not that it's not why can't people live here why why are so many people driving here from the east bay and from san jose um it's why do i have to see this traffic yeah (laughs) Yeah. And it's just it's just it's just really maddening to me that anyone who looks at this for any amount of time sees the regional problems, the regional problems of homelessness, the regional problems with any sort of housing instability, jobs, housing imbalance. And they will look at any kind of regional governing agency, look at any sort of regional housing policy that is dictated from the state on down or something like that uh, as an outrage to local control, which is sacred and to them, uh, seems to work, <laughs> which is... Well, yeah, it is working. If you own a house, it's working great. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. Your your home values have gone up. You know, your communities mostly stayed the same. Yeah, which is to me, like, it's it seems one of two things is possible, is that local control is impossible to make workable, or local control can only be made workable with a lot of structural changes in the incentives of people who live in an area. and But most people in the area who I think are kind of low-information, normal people who aren't perhaps grotesque, <laughs> grotesquely self-serving will say, well, local control, it should continue because it's good. Yeah. And just kind of, it's an ax- it's axiomatic belief. Yeah. Well, I think the the shift that needs to happen in terms of what the conversation is, is shifting from like... Should we have more housing? Should we do this project to like, how are we going to do it? So the state or some regional body says you're going to have a thousand units and how are you going to do it? Um, And then it could be a community planning discussion of like, how are we going to do it? But this whole debate about yes or no, it it makes no sense. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's, it's weird that like of all the words you say, which is, you know, everyone says, Oh, that's a good point. Saying local control must be preserved. That's somehow a conversation under. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Uh, So tell me if you think I'm going too far saying, I think the clearest way to deal with local control is disincorporating Palo Alto. I mean, (laughs) I I just don't know what that would look like. Uh, I would think, so if it was disincorporated, it would just be part of the county? be part of the county. I guess dis- it would be unincorporated Santa Clara County. Mm-hmm. And then you would allow, I'd say you could say you start Mountain View, but I think more sensibly, you have San Jose swallow up every underperforming city. If you don't hit Reno and Reno be real, you're disincorporated and then San Jose swallows you up. Uh, I still say there's issues in the fact that like you look at how the exclusive neighborhoods in San Jose, it's not like they go away. 
Right. You look at the west side of San Francisco. It's Mm -hmm. not like they stop Alamo Square and, you know, the sunset from being exclusive single family home areas. So I don't think it's a panacea, but I think it's one stick that could actually get cities to deliver. Yeah. I I just wonder about the the feasibility of like would more housing actually happen given the the power of sure. this community. It's like if it was disincorporated Palo Alto would still have a lot of power. Like it's still a lot of people with a lot of money yeah. uh who are well connected who could probably influence the their county supervisor sure. now to to prevent whatever from yeah. happening here. I think the question the more discretionary power goes to people who are rich and influential, mm-hmm. the more regressive it is. The more which is done, I think, in a clear-cut, transparent, and standard way across a greater region, mm-hmm. it is less likely to be maneuvered by people with more power, which is why SB50, I think, would be a great step forward for equity around this area. Because yeah, it just sets, this is the minimum standard yeah. for how you have to zone you can talk about what style you would like the building to be, but but yeah, you yeah. have to let it be five stories. Yeah, by and, the train. <laughs> and I think also this. I mean, in my dream world, the more you wear away exclusionary areas, mm-hmm. the more you actually stop one major, I guess, destructive factor in exclusionary areas, which is you get the VC funders who live in Atherton in the most exclusive ritzy areas. And they never even rub shoulders with with anyone else. In Palo Alto, I think it's 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 exclusive by nature. And I think you say, oh, even San Francisco, people live in luxury condos and they live a different world. But yeah, but you still are in a city and you see people who aren't all millionaires every day. Yeah, yeah. And I do wonder, like, if part of the resistance to change is just that. There hasn't been any change in so long. Yeah. So if things started to change and people saw, you know, the sky doesn't fall. Yeah. If a fourplex moved in on your blocks or on your block and it wasn't so bad, um, maybe that would make people more willing to have more new stuff. People are resilient. I, I think people deal with stuff well. If you say, oh, change is coming, I think the more coddled you are in this kind of <laughs> this kind of exclusive area the more you say I can't handle that mm-hmm. people will deal with it people are robust well people... and like once it's there people usually like it yes. it's just that when it's a theoretical new thing when you have to imagine it it's only scary you only think about the downsides but when it's there and you know those people and they're your neighbors yeah it's perfectly fine like I know 800 high um, apparently that building, which is also downtown, it's fairly close to the train station. I want to say it's three stories, um, but it was a big, big deal sure. when it got approved. And I guess it tore the community apart. Oh no! Um, like the, the mayor at the time said people who were his friends stopped talking to him. Um, and what, when was this? Um, maybe like, let's say a, a decade ago. Sure. Um, but now that it's there, it fits in perfectly fine with the community. Uh, people know people who live there. It's yeah. a perfectly acceptable building. But when it was just a theoretical building, when it was imaginary, people acted like 
it, it was the worst thing in the world and it was going to destroy everything. You look at them, like the Bay Area at large, like San Francisco, especially the Victorians. People hated the Victorians being built. Right. People said, oh, the Golden Great Bridge is going to destroy this area. Look at this monstrosity. <laughs> like there's a major outrage yeah. of any sort of change. And I mean, I think you can say like uh, people were at the Barcadero Institute, a very prestigious institute here uh, in Palo Alto, were making charts on why SB50 will ruin the area. Yeah. And it was a shot of single family homes being replaced by like a three story apartment building. Mm -hmm. And like the. Like a very modern looking yeah, three story be, apartment maybe building. Maybe they have like cube, cube shapes. Yes. Which is like, I mean, I think one hand, it's probably not the most beautiful building I've ever seen. It seems like it's more about optimizing for city planning than mm -hmm. it is about being beautiful, but uh, I, I don't really care. Uh, and also, I mean, I think a lot of stuff in the past, people probably love it in the future. This is going to be high 2010s modernism. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Because when people get used to stuff, then they like it. It's it, just when it's new. People don't... New stuff is scary. It is. And, yeah. and, and, they, and, they, and every one of these charts, they always show, I think it was a few things, a bunch of street parking, and they would show like a car driving through and hitting a bicyclist, <laughs> which is like, okay, maybe we need less parking. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but, let's, I, and I'm all for it. Let's regulate parking. Let's make, make it actually cost something to park on the street. I think if you have four cars parked on the street in like the residential parking permit area, like downtown, yeah. you can have four... Four cars parked on the street for fifty dollars a year. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's that's not going to shift the needle very much. Yeah. The the parking program website. I love this. the The subtitle for the Palo Alto parking program uh, is: "If you live here, you can park here," <laughs> which is one hundred percent not the message you should be sending. Yeah, and I mean that makes it uh, for for workers downtown. It's miserable. They have to because it's free parking for two hours. Yeah. Um, they have to go move their car mid shift yeah. um, to a new zone because they have different zones. And it, you, so you need to leave whatever zone you're parked in and move your car to a different zone. Um, but I think that's probably part of why there's such a labor shortage downtown is like if you work here, you can't park here. Um, Which honestly, I mean, I hate for the fact that we're coddling residents with their cars mm -hmm. while hurting workers. Yeah. But honestly hurting all car users is a good thing. Sure, yeah. I just hate the fact it is explicitly regressive. But, I mean, I think if you can get marginally more workers who can take the bus, that is a good thing for the area. Yeah, and the, I, I'm blanking on what the program, the Transportation Management Association, yeah. I think they're trying to work more um, to to include kind of service workers in that program. I think when it was initially rolled out, it was mostly for tech workers. So they would like subsidize the transit passes of like Palantir employees, yeah. uh, which is great. So Palantir employees aren't driving here, but they they weren't offering those kinds of services for restaurant workers. Um, and yeah. it, I think it's harder to administer because there's just more turnover uh, with those kinds of employees. But um, there is at least an effort to to extend the transportation management to that sector of employees. Is it so hard to find good help these days? That's, yes. That's... <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of restaurants in town really do struggle with this. The um, The owner of Zola came to a city council meeting recently and talked about the need for housing. Yeah. Um, and 
yeah, I know like multiple restaurants are, have closed down and specified that uh, labor shortages was the main reason for them closing. And, and yet we don't see a robotic automat in the area, which I would I really like if you just, you know, you come in, it's just like a vending machine that's a restaurant size. You know? Oh, okay. We haven't seen, like, it used to be big in the 30s, you know, just kind of <laughs> no service, no anything, just open a drawer, get your food, you know, but... Uh, that's not. I mean, it's maybe that that's our our future. It sounds doesn't I mean, sound very nice. Oh, no, me, I mean, it's, it's a future. I mean, I think it's 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 distinctly a worse case that I think. Oh yeah, we make things difficult to live, so let's have robots serve us, right? As opposed to having a world in which <laughs> in which you could, people could, of all incomes are welcome in our yeah. community, and we have all different kinds of homes. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the most interesting things about the the hotel president drama. So for people who are not familiar with Palo Alto, the hotel president is, um, was. It, it was, uh, it, so it was a hotel and then it was converted to kind of mostly studio apartments. Back in like 53 or something. Yeah. So, long, long time ago. So it's these kind of primarily micro studios that were renting for 1900 a month. Kitchenette in the hallway, I believe. Yeah, although some of them did have kitchens. Okay. Um, but but I think were a little more expensive. I think the cheapest ones had just like a yeah, kitchenette type situation. Um, but that building which was kind of a nice example of transit oriented. It had no parking, uh, small units right downtown. Um, it was sold to somebody who wanted to turn it back into a hotel and everyone was evicted. And it was kind of nice to see the city of Palo Alto really showed up for those residents and said, this isn't right. They shouldn't be evicted. Um, but it was interesting that people who are traditionally against housing in town all showed up to say this building is a treasure um this is like we have a diverse population in this building we need to preserve this building uh and don't see the connection like we have this diversity in this building because of the type of housing that it provides which is small units downtown near transit but if you proposed the exact same building that is new. Yeah, people, the same people would lose their minds and oh, say, "No way!" Yeah. Think, An, think of under, the parking and the traffic. Oh, yeah. your, your warehousing people. They, yes, they they hate the idea that anyone would willingly live without a kitchen. This is so yes. upsetting to so many people. Yeah. Speaking, of someone doesn't a kitchen myself. Uh, it's fine, you know people deal with it uh, but uh yeah it's it, and i think this is something that's interesting that there is a big difference in like the sf housing discourse which is you know spreading and just is is kind of one of the major online versions which is sf has a kind of dichotomy of if you are anti-building new stuff you're also for preserving old stuff and for tenant protections and so on which mm -hmm. i mean i think and then over here the people who are against building uh uh, building any anything new are usually anti-tenant protections. They at least won't stick their neck out. Yeah. They tend to be very just explicitly blood and soil, <laughs> you know, kind of suburban, uh, you know, uh, you know, suburban mindset folks. And that there is very little tenant protections in this entire area. And it is the people who are for growth who are actually doing the most to fight for tenant protections in this area. And I think something like uh, Peninsula Ever for Everyone is, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, doing doing one of the, the the most to raise awareness of the need for more tenant protections and i worry about the decay 
to, I think, the very stable but also very bad SF, which is just don't do anything forever is the wokest thing you can do mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's it means that you turn a lot of, I think, what is actively, you know, it's violent, sudden displacement through development into low, you know, very slow displacement through unaffordability. And that is kind of the status quo mm-hmm. in, in our areas that don't change. Uh, over here, you have, I think, the worst of all things, which is you don't change much. But when you do, you you demolish a place where the most, uh, you know, on the margin people are living. Mm-hmm. So it's... I, yeah. I, I think that the there is a lot of hope that we're getting to a new area in which you are doing change, but doing in a way that means no displacement. And this is this is something I, I think there's there's some interesting action going on through Mountain View and so on to actually deal with this in a good way. But I really worry that if Lydia Koo got woke and said like, oh, you know, what we need are more tenant protections, but everything else will stay the same. That, yeah. that would be a bad. That, well, that, she has tried that. She just can't. No she can't her. deliver it believably. Uh, yeah, because during during a discussion where she was trying to present, uh, like, let's talk about rent control, she ended up going on this rant about, "Do you want Palo Alto to be a renter town?" Yeah, like, like she couldn't hold it together you, just you, for that one discussion. If you want to house those people, yeah. you're going to have to protect them. It's like it's like yeah. the, like you clearly despise these people. Yeah. Yeah. She also said something like the diversity that we have is we already have the diversity that we need. Something like that. Ooh, um, that's where the- basically she was saying we shouldn't be bringing in new people because that's just going to turn it into a renter town. And then once it's a renter town, then we'll have to have rent control. But for the time being, let's just pretend we want rent control and we wink, wink aren't going to do anything yeah um yeah because it's it's been close to a year now since the council said let's study renter protections and literally nothing has happened yeah i mean there's not a lot of real eagerness (laughs) with with the lydia coup and du bois gang to really do much about it so i'm not shocked that no one is actually fighting hard for it yeah it's just it's political theater look look we are good people we want to help help the pores, um, yeah. but yeah, not in a genuine way. And I'll say this. It's like, I, I like the fact she's writing a pretty good agenda. I want a renter town. A renter town is a more <laughs> equitable town where all people, like the, the, the fact I'm an owner and there's renters next to me, that is, it's this weird kind of feudal hierarchy that's really, really gross. Yeah. Apparently my, my, I live in a condo that's, I want to say uh, eight plex. Okay. Um, and apparently there used to be like a great community in this building, but over time it has transitioned to now there are only two owners in the building and everyone else rents. And now, you know, there's all this animosity um, yeah. and yeah, they they don't like having renters in the building. Housing insecurity really turns people away from each other. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm uh, currently reading uh, Master and Margarita, uh, the uh, the uh, Russian uh, novel from like the written in the 20s and 30s, and it's all about housing scarcity in Moscow at the time. And boy, people, there is nothing that that makes people turn each other more than scarcity for housing. Yeah. It, it undermines community, I think, Absolutely. in a meaningful way. And people in Palo Alto do talk about that and recognizing that there seems to be a loss of a sense of community and just kind of a general, like, unease. Um, and I, 
I think that's what it's about is like yeah. when only people who have many millions of dollars are welcome in your neighborhood, it's going to change the nature of your neighborhood. Yeah. And this used to be a place that I think it's always been an expensive place, but not not to the same degree. And that's, um, a, that's a thing I kind of, you know, really never feel the pangs like, oh, I've been living here since the 70s. It used to be normal then. You know, it's like you were still explicitly exclusionary against East Palo Alto. Right. (laughs) Since the moment you decided to move here, I'm really not shedding a lot of tears for the idea that you are somehow like, it's like, oh, it used to be this this completely egalitarian wonderland. It never was. Yes. Yeah. From the very beginning, I think. Um, Maybe when it was just the university and a bunch of fields to some degree. Well, I mean, it's a fairly exclusive university, so probably not. It was made by a railroad tycoon. Yeah. (laughs) Good point. Um, Yeah. And I also think that some of the founding people, um, like, I'm not going to remember the details of it, but from the color of law, they talk about there was a a pushed from this co-op to yeah. to make um, to build housing in Palo Alto. I think it was actually I read this, this passage. I haven't read through yeah. the book, but I think it was Quakers in the area yeah. who actually looked to make desegregated housing yes. in Palo Alto, and it didn't work. I want to say the financiers wouldn't let them um, yeah. have it be integrated, um, and they tried to move to like Mountain View and so on, and like it just just everyone was turning against them. I think Palo Alto was just the the most out, outrage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think from the from its founding, it hasn't been a an, an integrated place. Although I think certain parts of town were formerly redlined areas, like yeah. the Ventura neighborhood used to be a redlined neighborhood, but has I think by this point been fully gentrified. And that's something that like I, I actually I need to like learn all the maps, but school districts like Ravenswood, the fact that Ravenswood is pulling from East Palo Alto and then the red line portion of Menlo Park, yeah. that's it's just that's like it's so like over the top and grotesque. The idea is like, oh yeah, these are all the impoverished parts of two cities, but they get together to allow their schools to be relatively disadvantaged. Yeah, Menlo Park's segregation is is something else um yeah i get so palo alto has a unified school district um but because east palo alto isn't a part of palo alto yeah they are a separate school district um but menlo park apparently does not have a unified school district so they have like multiple school districts in their city which was a new concept to me like they've got a Sequoia High School District and then the Ravenswood School District, which is like just the formerly redlined areas. Yeah, until this, I was unified. Like, I'm I'm familiar with like exclusionary cities Mm -hmm. tend to be a way to drive like school segregation. Mm -hmm. But then they go the extra miles. Like, even though we're one city, we can still segregate within our city. Right. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how that's even how that's legal. Um, yeah, like we, we did stuff to make sure property taxes divvy up to the state level and brought back, but explicit segregation within a city to the good part and bad part, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's I, instead of dealing with the financing, I think outright busing would be a much more direct solution to this, at least in my mind. Yeah, although I did talk to a friend of mine who is a, a homeowner in Palo Alto uh, and uh her her main gripe about busing is like you're bringing these people 
in, um, but you're not providing them any other services besides you can go to school here. So if we think about the homelessness in Ravenswood School District, it's like if you're not doing anything to address the underlying poverty in those areas, um, the people who you're you're bringing into your wealthy community are still going to be suffering i I, I do think it's something yeah i think some opportunity well i think that's a very good point i think in itself it's certainly not a panacea in any degree but i think at the very least just putting a you know putting a nail under the fingernail of 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 the most exclusionary school districts that can only mean good things yeah and there is a program palo alto has this program called the tinsley program where they they bus a certain percentage of people from Ravenswood over to Palo Alto enough to assuage your guilt right then... <laughs> yeah um but but yeah the the Ravenswood school district is still like hobbling along there's all these headlines all the time about yeah how they are in various states of disarray um so the the kids who are not lucky enough to yeah. be part of the Tinsley program are yeah and um, I think when I talk about yeah. busing my mind it is not something of saying oh bus a certain amount in it's more about Create a unified clearinghouse for who goes to which school in the area, mm-hmm. and you're just as likely to be East Palo Alto going to Palo Alto and vice versa. You yeah. know, that's yeah. real buzzing. But that, that's where people would it would flip. They wouldn't stand for it if you <laughs> oh, yeah. if you spend five million dollars to buy your house in Palo Alto, but then you, your kids are bussed over to the Ravenswood School District. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't stand for it. Exactly, and I think that's why you need a massive revisioning of people throughout the state. Say. You know, exclusionary, uh, you know, areas to allow class segregation through schools. Maybe we should stop doing this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and but that's not really on the table right now. But yeah. it should be. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Penisa, for everyone, uh, what, what's what's going on right now? What are you kind of hoping to work on in this coming, uh, I guess, calendar year or, or I guess school year, as far as it goes? So, city um, councils get off during the summer. Just like yeah. So we've endorsed uh, Mike Dunham, who's a candidate for city council in Burlingame. Um, and so I think this year for the like 2019 election cycle, that's probably the only campaign that we're going to be working on. Um, but there are lots of local efforts. So I, I think one big thing people are going to be working on is the Sequoia Station plan in uh, Redwood City. And uh, and then also just getting ready for the 2020 elections um, where uh, Jerry Hill, who is our current state senator, is terming out and uh, we're going to be endorsing and campaigning for his future replacement. All of which say at the moment they don't endorse SB 50. Yes. Although, yeah, I don't know politically if it would be a good move to endorse SB 50 here. It would be nice if someone was brave enough to just say, I endorse it and... I mean, I'm black-pilled enough uh, that I think anyone who would speak truth and want good things in this area is unelectable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much, at least in the Bay Area... I think one of the most exclusive parts of the Bay Area because it covers m- most of San Mateo County, yeah, uh, which is a very exclusive area, and then uh, Santa Clara County down to Sunnyvale, yeah. So, yeah, it's not an easy district. Well, what was your experience like? Speaking of, I think, uh, yeah, working within the system of uh, getting on the planning commission. Oh well, so I applied for the planning commission. Um, 
I just coincidentally had a planning commissioner who lived upstairs from me. Oh, cool. Um, and she was going to be moving to San Diego and was really on board for me being part of the planning commission. So she helped me with my application. And um, yeah, so th- I mean, I applied. I had my interview. It went fairly well. Um I'm but, confident. But they, they knew your face from speaking yeah, out. Yeah, they. Everyone knows me from from being at council all the time and yeah. and yelling at them. Um, so yeah, but it was an unsuccessful bid. What I've heard from like the behind the scenes stuff is one particular council member said I was too much of an activist, uh, and he wouldn't vote for me. Yeah. Um. So so yeah. I shouldn't have spoken out so much <laughs> against parking garages because yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what that and my my stance on renter protections. I think sure um, th- this particular council member is kind of a kind of a chamber of commerce mm. uh, guy where he, renter protections are a market distortion. You can't have right, them. They're gonna, right. They're going to ruin our perfect housing market that's yeah. clearly yes. working so yeah, well we, here. We yeah, we have a perfectly <laughs> undistorted market. We can't we can't disrupt it with renter protections. Yeah, but I think the parking garage is probably what did it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I, I think that it is completely. I, I I applied back before I got evicted from Sunnyvale, mm-hmm. and uh, they chose to leave the seat open instead of appointing me to the commission. Oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah. I, for, from my perspective, there were plenty of other qualified candidates. I didn't yeah. feel like <laughs> I like the people they chose. They yeah. they chose good people, so I'm I'm perfectly fine to not be on the planning commission, um, but but yeah, it it was just the, the idea of somebody is too much of an activist if they come to council and speak out. And I also thought it was interesting because there are currently no renters on the planning commission and all the renters who I know who applied would be in the activist category. There are people who show up and, you know, spoke out in various ways. And yeah. So if, if you think an activist applying uh, is disqualifying that would eliminate the people who are not being served by your current system. Um, I mean, I think by and large, the homeowner planner industrial complex is very strong throughout Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And I think it's absolutely, uh, you know, uh, unsurprising that anyone who would want to disrupt that through their activism would be Unqual- you know, just disqualifying yeah. for, for this. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an extremist. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Which is, it's, it's. Uh, I think doing doing what we can outside of that system might be more realistic than thinking that like a lot is going to change within the Palo Alto Planning Commission. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't hold a lot of hope for things changing significantly within Palo Alto, and that's why I'm kind of putting my faith in this more the regional organizing to try to get more change happening on the state level because yeah, yeah, I don't see Palo Alto picking up the ball and rising to the challenge (laughs) of dealing with the housing crisis. Yeah. Yeah. There there are the, Probably well, outside of Atherton, the foremost bad actor in the area. You're not going to depend on them to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think we're a worse actor than Atherton because Atherton doesn't have. It, they're not a huge job center. That's um, true. It's it's they're they're freakish in a different way, but not maybe as actively destructive. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. They are certainly guilty of extreme exclusion, but. 
Um, but yeah, I don't think their regional impact is as yeah destructive as Palo Alto. Yeah, and Cupertino. I think it's a it's a race between Palo Alto and Cupertino in terms of who's the worst. But so, I think we're the worst. So, is there any other, uh, I guess, like a final thought of why you you know, are optimistic of why it's worth putting time <laughs> to the activist scene? It's such a yeah, hopeless place. I don't know that I'm optimistic, but I uh, I think it's it's worth fighting for. Um, I can imagine something better, and I hope that I can get more like people who just haven't thought about it before because i think a normal person has not really thought about how cities are designed or what the zoning is behind it or what the future should look like that would be a more equitable future they have those values but they they aren't like obsessed with the policy (laughs) in the same way that us housing weirdos are obsessed with the policy um so I think that's my hope. Is it's that, the only way you stay sane. Because yeah. I think it's very easy to be a normie who just like, oh, yeah, things are probably a bit weird, but okay. Yeah. And, the, and these people tend to say, oh, yeah, do a little bit of regional change, whatever. And then when people actually learn about the systems, it drives you insane. Yes. Yeah. So what made me crazy, and I've I've said this before, but it wasn't, it was on an unreleased <laughs> podcast, a secret podcast. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, what what pushed me to become a crazy person was I was renting a one bedroom bungalow that I shared with a roommate. Um, I paid sixteen fifty a month for it, and it was on a property with two apartments, and um, so three total units. And the property was sold for three and a half million dollars, and immediately a development sign went up, and their plan for that property was to tear it down and build one big mansion, and it. It so many times you do something, you need a zone variance. It's like this is improper, but we're going to fight no. for it. This yeah. one, this is legal. This was this was ministerial review. I called up the city. I said, "This is crazy. <laughs> we have a housing crisis. Uh, we need more homes, not fewer. Like, why is this allowed?" And the city said, "Well, it's actually." It was illegal to build that third unit in the first place. This is zone single family. It will be approved. There's nothing the city can do. This is lawful. Yeah. Um, it's ministerial review. It's happening. Um, so that was what pushed me to become a crazy person <laughs> and to start showing up. And I learned more and more. And the more I learned, the more crazy I became. Yeah. And yeah. So I think if more people knew some of the the barriers to housing, um, they they would become crazy too. <laughs> I think if going to Paul City Council on almost any given week is the most radicalized <laughs> you can go right. to. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a bit a bit much. So, uh, but thank you so much for coming here today and talking about this. It's been it's been fun. Yes, thank you for having me. Cool. Bye. We have been talking to Kelsey Baines all about Paul Alto Housing, homelessness services in this area and much more. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of this program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Shue, Stanford 2023-2024.